my favorite novels is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, if, if you don't know it, it's the book with the famous opening line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. And, and on and on, the opening sentence goes to almost kind of a paragraph length. Um, the reason I love Dickens' book is because of how his work resonates with the themes of substitution and sacrifice, themes that are near and dear to me as a follower of Jesus, the, the one who substituted himself, offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners like me. If you're honest with yourself, then you'll admit that you need someone to stand in your place and set you free. You need someone to offer themselves as a substitute and a sacrifice to save you. To save you from the condemnation of death. The condemnation and death that your sins deserve. One of the most riveting scenes, at least I think it's riveting, in A Tale of Two Cities is the trial of Charles Darnay. Darnay, he stands accused of treason. Uh, they think he's been passing secrets uh, from, from England to France. And as the trial begins, Darnay, uh, Dickens described Darnay's demeanor, kind of his, his expression at this trial, this, the atmosphere in the courtroom in this way. He writes, quote, The accused, that's Darnay, the accused, who was and who knew he was, being mentally hanged, beheaded, and quartered by everybody there, neither flinched from the situation, nor assumed any theatrical air in it. He was quiet and attentive, watched the opening proceedings with the gravest interest, and stood with his hands resting on the slab of wood before him so composedly that they had not displaced a leaf of the herbs with which it was strewn. Well, as the, the trial unfolds, witnesses are, are brought forward against Darnay and their testimony appears to be damning. The case against Darnay begins to unravel, however, when witnesses are urged to kind of look intently upon him. As it turns out, there was another man in the courtroom who looked just like him. Sidney Carton. Outwardly, these men looked strikingly similar, but their lives were vastly different. Sidney Carton saved Charles Darnay from death that day by standing at his side. But we need to see something much more than that when we think about Jesus. But we need Jesus to stand not merely at our side, but in our place. And in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25, we learn that Jesus has done just that for us. If you haven't done so, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 23. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 833. And while you're turning there, please allow me to remind us of where we are in our study of Luke's gospel. The Gospel of Luke is a, is a Greco-Roman biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. In, in this literary genre, authors would generally focus in on a few select areas of a subject's life. Uh, they would often survey the circumstances and the genealogical background of a person's birth, reflect on a, a number of the person's deeds, summarize uh, the essential aspects of their teaching, uh, these Greco-Roman biographies, or bioi, as they're sometimes called, uh, would then conclude with a fairly lengthy description of the circumstances surrounding a person's death. Luke has faithfully followed the, the kind of the rules for this genre in recounting the life and ministry of Jesus. The first three chapters of Luke's gospel focus in on Jesus' birth and his genealogy. Essentially, Luke was concerned to communicate to us that Jesus is the promised Messiah that the Old Testament anticipated and announced. Jesus is the new Adam. He's the promised offspring of Abraham. He's a prophet like Moses and a king from the line of David. Chapters 4 through 9, then, of Luke's Gospel focused in on a number of Jesus' mighty works. Jesus, he overcame the devil's temptation. He cast out demons. He healed the sick and the paralyzed. He called 12 disciples to follow him. He raised the dead, and he forgave sinners. 
And so we learned in our study of those chapters that Jesus is able to reverse the cursed brokenness that this world suffers under. And as we traveled through chapters 10 through 19, we walked with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And along this road, Jesus taught his disciples about the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus revealed that he was the king of the kingdom of God. He revealed that his kingdom was open to sinners who would come to him, confess their sins, and believe in his power to forgive. Jesus, he, he opened his kingdom to the spiritually poor and needy, but he closed it to those who in their pride and self-righteousness would refuse to receive him. And so we learned that Jesus' kingdom was not ultimately of this world, but of the world to come. Roughly since chapter 20, we've been studying the final days of Jesus in Jerusalem. His death is fast approaching. And in our last study in Luke's gospel, we examined Jesus last night in the Garden of Gethsemane. There we learned that Jesus would submit himself to God the Father's will and die in the place of sinners. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own disciples. He has been denied and abandoned by his followers. He's been blindfolded and beaten and blasphemed. And in the midst of it all, he is revealed that he is the Son of God. And it is that revelation, this revelation is what led the leaders of the Jewish people to bring him before the Roman authorities for judgment. And in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25, we see Jesus denounced before Pilate and derided by Herod. All of the charges against Jesus are dismissed, but Jesus is delivered over to death. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25 teach us that though Jesus was charged, he was not convicted. And still, it was determined that he should be crucified. What is going on? What is the point of all of this? Well, the point is simply this. The righteous died for the unrighteous. If you're looking for a single sentence to summarize the passage of Scripture that we're going to study together this morning, that's it. In the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-18, to the righteous died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or you could put it in the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're going to study these verses under two headings. Number one, Jesus is tried. And number two, Jesus is traded. Jesus is tried and Jesus is traded. Let's begin with our first point. Jesus is tried. Here we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 23. Let me read Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then... The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and was, he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing... He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. 
One of the striking features of these verses is how Jesus brings unity. Uh, we, we see this at the beginning and the end of these verses. You can see there in verse 1 that the, the whole company of them arose together and as one collective, one kind of unified mass, they brought Jesus before Pilate for judgment. Together they accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation. The Jewish religious leaders are united in their opposition to Jesus. And then if you skip down to the end of these verses, particularly in verse 12, we see that Jesus has brought two enemies together. He is tried before each of them and so becomes one of the instigating factors for their friendship. These verses depict a scene of kind of back and forth, don't they? The Jewish religious leaders argue with Pilate back and forth. They argue with Herod back and forth. Pilate and Herod pass Jesus back and forth. Is Jesus just a pawn? Is he just being used kind of for the amusement of the crowds and for those in power? Or is something more significant going on here? Yes, something more significant is going on here. What is being stressed in these verses is Jesus' innocence, even as he is passed back and forth from Pilate to Herod's courtroom. Notice there in verse 2 that the Jewish religious leaders come up with three charges against Jesus. Number one, Jesus has been misleading the Jewish nation. Number two, Jesus forbid Jews from giving tribute, that's paying taxes, to Caesar. Number three, Jesus has declared himself to be the Christ, a king. The Jewish religious leaders have brought Jesus before Pilate because, as Luke chapter 22 verse 2 tells us, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death. You see, the, the Jewish religious leaders couldn't put Jesus to death under their own authority. For Rome had confiscated that authority when they subjected the Jewish people to their rule. I wonder if you notice how these charges are painted. There's a definite political kind of texture to these charges, isn't there? They suggest that Jesus was misleading the Jewish nation, which suggests that Jesus is at least trying to lead the Jewish nation. And that word mislead in verse 2 actually has connotations of subversion. Jesus is a subversive leader according to these charges. And let me tell you, that's one way to get Pilate's attention. What ruler likes hearing that a fellow under his authority is subversive? And the second charge is equally egregious. The Jewish religious leaders are essentially charging Jesus with encouraging citizens not to pay taxes to Rome. Do you think Pilate and the Roman government have any interest in seeing their stream of tax revenue decreased? Well, the third charge is actually designed to put Pilate kind of in the hot seat. The Jewish religious leaders accuse Jesus of claiming to be a king. If Pilate is any friend of Caesar, then he must do something about this. Caesar can have no ruling rival. Are these accusations against Jesus even accurate? More to the point, is Jesus guilty of them or innocent? Jesus certainly was trying to lead the people of Israel in a direction that was contrary to the leadership of the chief priests and scribes. According to the testimony of Luke's gospel, I think that we must say that Jesus was actually trying to lead the people of Israel back to God. But this doesn't make Jesus' leadership subversive. It actually makes it faithful. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's always remember this. Jesus will never mislead us. He perfectly obeyed the Father's will. He perfectly honored God. He perfectly kept God's law. And if we follow Him, we will never be misled. That doesn't mean that we won't escape. That doesn't mean we will escape the scorn of others. In fact, following Jesus may bring us under such scorn. Still, is it not better to suffer unjustly for a time than to suffer God's justice for all time? Follow Jesus, and you will not be misled. What about the second charge? It seems patently false in light of Jesus' admonition in Luke chapter 20, verse 25. You can flip back just a couple of chapters. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 25, you'll see that Jesus, in being asked this question about taxes, Jesus says, Render to Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. See, Jesus never forbid the Jewish people from paying taxes to Caesar. Instead, he challenged them not only to give what they owe to Caesar, their taxes, but also to give what they owe to God, their whole lives. As we sometimes sing here, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's a challenge that each one of us here this morning ought to consider. Are, are we giving or have we given our whole lives to God? Are we holding anything back from Him? Is there any part of us that we do not want to turn over to Him out of fear of losing something or someone? Take some time this afternoon or, or this week and ask yourself that question, does God, does Jesus have my whole life? Am I willing to entrust it all to Him? It's really the third charge, I think, that Jesus declared Himself to be the Christ, a King, that is the most challenging, actually. If you were to look over the last section of Luke chapter 22, if you look particularly at verses 66 to 71, those verses that kind of conclude the chapter, you would see the climactic summary of what Jesus has revealed about Himself. He has identified himself as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And in this revelation, Jesus has unmistakably identified himself as the Christ, the promised and long-awaited King. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Son of Man and Son of God. And here we must remember, however, that Jesus' conception of his messianic kingship is different than that which was popular in the first century, particularly among the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders believed that the, the messianic kingdom of God would be of this world. That the promised king would come and he would overthrow Israel's oppressors by the sword, by war. But Jesus, he, he never taught that about his kingdom. Whenever Jesus taught about it, what it meant for him to be the Christ and, and the conquering king, he always taught that he must suffer and die. There are at least three occasions of this in Luke's gospel, but for now just consider one. In Luke chapter 18 verses 31 to 33, this is what Jesus said. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. This is what Jesus thought about his work as king. So is Jesus guilty? No. He's not guilty. He's not guilty of the charges that are, are brought against him. As readers, I think that we are meant to come to the same conclusion that Pilate comes to in verse 4. You see that there? I find no guilt in this man. And that's even after he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked this question with, I think with some amount of attitude. Um, that you in the original language is, in the Greek, is emphatic. It's filled with kind of disgust and incredulity. He kind of scoffed at the idea that Jesus could be, are you, are you really the king of the Jews? I mean, how could Jesus be king? Especially coming to him looking like this. Right? He's, he's haggard from a sleepless night. Bloodied from a beating at the hands of the guards. And in all likelihood, he's dirty. No doubt from falling to the ground in the course of his beating or praying on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the words of Isaiah 53 too, which we read earlier in the service, he had no form of majesty. Jesus doesn't look like a king. He had no form of majesty. Pilate looked at Jesus and thought, how could he be the king of the Jews when his own people want him dead? This is just silly to Pilate. It's a, a suggestion that lacks any sense of sincerity. But Jesus answers affirmatively. You have said so. It's true, Pilate. Conservative scholars are, are almost universally agreed that Jesus' answer is an affirmation. It's an enigmatic affirmation, a kind of mysterious affirmation, but it is an affirmation nevertheless. Still, it is clear that Pilate, he's not threatened by Jesus' claim. 
This is no surprise, for as we learn in John's Gospel, when Jesus affirms his kingship in John chapter 18, 1836, he proclaims that his kingdom is not of this world. So listen to what Jesus said there. This is John 1836. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. With this background, we can see why Pilate would not be threatened. For if Jesus' kingdom is not of the world, then it's, it's no concern to Pilate. He's worried about these temporal things here. He, it's no real threat to Caesar. And so, in verse 4, from the lips of Pilate, we have the first of five occasions in this text. Five occasions in which Jesus is declared not guilty. We'll take a look at each occasion, but Jesus is proclaimed as innocent in one form or another, either explicitly or implicitly, in verse 4, 14, twice in 15, and once in verse 22. Not content with this judgment, you see the crowd who had first thrown their accusations out against Jesus returned to the charge, their first charge, there in verse 5. They, you know, maybe they believe that Pilate yeah, he doesn't adequately understand what we're suggesting here about Jesus. So, so let's begin at the beginning, Pilate. We're going to start back at our first charge. And we're going to work through these things again. Uh, this time, they intensify, really, and expand the first charge. Pilate, it's not, it's not just here in Jerusalem that Jesus has been misleading people, but he's been doing it all over the place. He's done it in Judea and Galilee, too. And it's that mention of Galilee that gets Pilate thinking, Hey, uh, Herod's in town. He's, he's kind of over that Galilee region. It's, it's his job to rule over that territory. Um, maybe if, if I kick this over to him, uh, I can send him over to Herod and I'll be done with this problem. Um, it, seems like, uh, it seems likely that Pilate would have known of Herod's interest in Jesus. We see that here. Uh, Herod's interest, frankly, was probably widely known. In the very least, the Jewish religious leaders could have informed Pilate of Herod's interest. For some of the Pharisees warned Jesus about Herod in Luke chapter 13 verse 31. There we read, Some of the Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, whatever the case may be, after Pilate tries Jesus and finds him not guilty, he passes Jesus off to Herod. Herod is glad, as you see there in verse 8. He had long desired to see Jesus. His time had finally come. He really wanted to see Jesus do something fancy. He wanted a kind of a super sign from Jesus. And friends, can I just pause here and urge you not to ask God for signs? Generally speaking in the Bible, it's not a mark of faith or faithfulness to ask God for a sign. Maybe you think of Gideon in the Old Testament, that fleece that he lays out. But friend, I think you're misunderstanding the passage if you think that Gideon was acting in faith by asking for a sign. Asking for a sign, I think, amounts to making demands of God. And that does not bring him honor. I would not be surprised if God answered your demands for a sign with silence. If you feel as though you've seen some sign kind of fulfilled in your life because you asked for it, I wonder if it's been something of kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't mean to be cruel in this. Uh, I really don't mean to kind of crush the prospect of you hoping to see some sign from God in your life. I simply want you to know that the Bible generally does not approve of, of such a practice. I would ask you, do you think Jesus is being honored here with these questions and this demand for a sign? If not... Then, then why would we imagine that our asking for a sign would bring honor to Jesus? The point of the signs that Jesus performed throughout the Gospels was to reveal his character. To reveal that he was who he said he was. That he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Signs, you see, in the Gospels, the signs that Jesus performs are about Jesus. Signs are about the Savior. They're about God's redemptive purposes. And they're not really about us. Anyway, this scene with Herod follows a similar course as the one that preceded it. Jesus is accused and he's questioned. In essence, he is put on trial. What is different about this scene, though, is that Jesus 
makes no answer. You see that there in verse 9, I'm sure. Jesus answered Pilate, but he doesn't answer Herod. Does this remind you of anything? Hopefully you're remembering the prophecy about Jesus, again, that we read earlier in the service. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Uh, there we, we read, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus stands silent. While the chief priests and the scribes, they stand and scream. Notice what happens next in verse 11. He was oppressed and afflicted, as Isaiah said. Jesus is assaulted. I don't know about you, but I was, I was surprised by what I read in verse 11. It was a, a detail that really hadn't hit me um, till reading this passage afresh this week. Verse 11, And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt. Uh, for, for some reason... Uh, I, in the past, I always felt as though Herod kind of remained at a distance from this assault. But here he is stepping down to personally assault Jesus. Everyone, I think, had a hand in this rejection of Jesus. Jesus' accusers have followed him from Pilate's court to Herod's court. And we see in verse 10 that the chief priests and the scribes were there vehemently accusing Jesus. And this is all part of the culmination of the rejection of God's Son. The rejection really of God himself. The people of Israel had a long history of rejecting God's messengers and despising his word. This scoffing and mocking at the hand of Herod is in all likelihood an echo of what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 16. Listen to what the people of Judah did. 2 Chronicles 36 16. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Later tonight, in our communion service at 5 o'clock, our brother James McClarty is going to uh, kind of expound this verse. And I'd invite you to join us as we think, as we continue to think, about the sufferings of Christ for our salvation. When verse 11 tells us that Herod and the soldiers arrayed Jesus in splendid clothing, we're meant to understand that they dressed Jesus up like a king. Just like Pilate, Herod mocked Jesus' claim. And he mocked the charge that the scribes and the chief priests kind of leveled against him. Like Pilate, he didn't take this case seriously. And like Pilate, he didn't really think that Jesus was guilty. If you let your eyes skip down there to verse 15, you'll see that. In verse 14, Pilate says that he doesn't think that Jesus is guilty. And then he goes on in verse 15, he says, Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. You see, Herod's passing Jesus back to Pilate was an admission that there is no there there. With Jesus' return, Herod is implicitly saying, there, there's no case here. So, so you handle this situation. This is a horrifying scene, isn't it? None of the rulers, those who are actually in authority, are really wielding their authority in a just and merciful manner. Herod uses his authority to interrogate Jesus, to demand signs from him, and then assault him when he doesn't get what he wants. Pilate wields his authority in using Jesus to establish a friendly connection with a former enemy. And Jesus gets used and abused in the process, even though he's perfectly innocent. Pilate does not appear to be horrified that his innocent prisoner was so badly mistreated. In fact, it's disturbing that he is glad to be friends with a man who assaults others. What has been revealed in all of this back and forth is that both men believe that Jesus was innocent. He has been tried in two courtrooms, Herod's and Pilate's, and he has been found not guilty. Both men had the power to free Jesus, but didn't. We can come up with human reasons for this, for why they didn't. But ultimately, they didn't free Jesus because he was who he said he was. He was, is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the King who has come to conquer sin and death through his sufferings. And that is why, in the next scene, Jesus is delivered over to death. So let's turn now and consider our second point. 
Jesus is tried. That's what we've just looked at. Now we're going to look at Jesus being traded. Jesus is traded. Read verses 13 to 25 now. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. I, I trust you see why I've entitled this point, Jesus is traded. In the end, Jesus is exchanged for Barabbas, and he's delivered up to be crucified. That's not where this scene begins. You see there in verse 13, this scene shifts back to Pilate's courtroom. Uh, Pilate calls Jesus' accusers to hear his judgment. In many respects, the trial is over. Uh, notice that Pilate calls together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. See, the, the world is arrayed against Jesus. Here I'm reminded of what we read in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The world has conspired, plotted, and planned to despise Jesus. Jesus, he is all alone. Can I ask my single brothers and sisters in Christ to take special note of this? Jesus is all alone. He has been all alone since basically the end of chapter 22, when he was denied and abandoned. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows what it mean, means to be all alone. He has known loneliness. He is in kind of solitary confinement, in isolation, and the excruciating pain of being alone is only going to increase as he makes his way to the cross. When you are feeling alone, don't let Satan tempt you to despair. Don't listen to his lie that says, no one understands my loneliness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does. He understands loneliness. He knows what it means to be alone. And if you can believe it, it was precisely because he went through this alone that he made it possible for you to never be alone. Frankly, you'll never experiencing the devastating aloneness that Jesus did. When Jesus went through this alone, he did it so that he might dwell with you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus went through this alone, he did it to redeem a people for himself. He did it to redeem children for God. He did it so that we wouldn't have to be alone. Jesus suffered alone in order to give his people a twofold gift, himself and his people. You are not alone. Jesus is with you and you are a part of a family redeemed by Jesus. You need to call another brother or sister in this church family and you need to say, I'm lonely right now. Can I come over? And you need not be ashamed of that confession. 
And if you are on the other side of that phone call, your answer needs to be yes. We need to say yes to each other in our time of need. And we need to be cultivating relationships so that we are someone that can be called. And if you are not someone who can be called, then I'd suggest to you that you have some work to do in building relationships within this church family so that you can be someone to call. We need to be proactive in reaching out to our brothers and sisters so that we are a source of comfort. As, as a church family, we have covenanted together to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We have promised this to one another. And we need to make good on our promises. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus is all alone. But now we also need to see that Pilate, he is in a corner. Pilate, he, he often gets a bad rap. And at one level, he should be condemned for his part in this injustice against Jesus. But for now, notice what we read about Pilate there in verse 20. You see what Pilate wanted, what he desired? He desired to release Jesus. And I think he was serious about this too. He mentioned it twice. In verses 16 and 22, he told Jesus' accusers that he preferred to punish and release Jesus. That, that reference to punishment is likely a reference to, to whipping and beating Jesus within an inch of his life. But that offer is not enough for Jesus' accusers, is it? Did you notice the reaction from the crowd at this offer from Pilate? Verse 18. But they all cried out, away with this man, and released to us Barabbas. Skip down to verse 21. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Crying, shouting, demanding. Pilate was trying to reason with them. But this crowd would not be reasoned with. How often do we see that in our world today? This crowd would not be reasoned with. Nothing short of Jesus' death would do. Children, youth, young adults, please take note of this. Uh, living in this world requires discernment. Neither those in authority, Pilate or Herod, nor the crowd deliver justice to Jesus. Living in this world, you simply cannot decide to blindly follow those in authority. And you cannot simply blindly follow the crowd. You must think about the decisions that leaders are making, and you must think carefully about the demands that crowds are making. You, you must ask, are these decisions and demands reflective of the justice and mercy of God revealed in the Bible? Christians must live carefully and thoughtfully in this world. And I would encourage you to give your ears to your parents as they endeavor to teach you about life in this world and life under Jesus' lordship. Wisdom and discernment are needed not only by the young among us, but by all of us. Many here today will have the privilege of voting on Tuesday. Brothers and sisters, be wise. Be informed and be discerning as you go to the polls. As we see here from Pilate and Herod, it is important who our leaders are. We ought to desire and vote for leaders who are persuaded, who we are persuaded of, that they will not bend to unjust demands to make a politically savvy decision to protect their place. We ought to vote for and support candidates and leaders who will pay the price for pursuing justice and mercy. Still, there is another group of leaders in this text. Religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. If we need to be wise and discerning about our political leaders, how much more do we need to be wise and discerning concerning those who lead our church body? I know that many of you are eager to see new elders raised up in our congregation. And I can promise you that your eagerness is surpassed by that of the current elders. And yet, because leadership among God's people is so important, 
we must be careful about who we nominate and recognize to serve as elders among us. So please join the elders in praying that God would raise up more elders, more men to serve Christ's flock. Pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment as elders and as a church family, as a church body, as we seek to see them recognized, as we seek to see men recognized, who will first and foremost be committed to God's word, to be inflexibly committed to God's word, to the glory of Christ and the good of Jesus' sheep. As we saw earlier, Pilate, he did not want to put Jesus to death. His preference was to punish and release him. This was Pilate's preference in part because he was trying to appease Jesus' accusers and satisfy the demands of justice. It's impossible to do both. It's impossible to satisfy the unjust demands of men and satisfy the demands of justice. Pilate wanted to release Jesus because he was persuaded that Jesus was innocent. Look at how Pilate expresses this there in verse 14. I did not find this man guilty of, note that word, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. They may have found Jesus guilty. They said so in verse 2. We found him, Pilate said, but I did not find him. Since Jesus is not guilty, he doesn't deserve death. That's what Pilate says there in verse 15. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. The crowd was urgent with Pilate. And I think that we can say at some level, Pilate was actually urgent with the crowd. Pilate knows that they want this man dead. And so he finally asks there in verse 21, why? What evil has he done? Notice they don't answer his question. What evil has he done? That's the question, isn't it? What evil has Jesus done to deserve this death? If you were to go back and read through this gospel, you would come to the same conclusion that Pilate comes to in verse 21. I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. The charges are bogus. Jesus is not deserving of death. He is not guilty, and yet their demand was granted. Their will prevailed. You see that verse 25. Why? Because ultimately... This was also God's will. That's what Luke will tell us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter's preaching, and this is what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This was God's definite plan. And Peter repeats the same point two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. This is what Peter says. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, the whole world, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you hear what Peter, the Apostle Peter, is saying about what was happening in Luke 23. This was their will, and it was God's will. Why was this God's will? Because guilty men like Barabbas, like you and me, need to be rescued from the judgment that is due to our sin. We need Jesus to take our place. This is why Jesus' innocence is so sharply contrasted to Barabbas' guilt. Twice we're told of Barabbas' guilt there in verses 19 and 25. We're told that Barabbas was thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Later that day, later this very day, Jesus would be crucified between two criminals. Could that cross have been Barabbas' cross? It could have been. It should have been. It should have been our cross. Again, what we're seeing here is nothing less than the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. We read earlier, Isaiah 53, 6. Listen to this verse again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
even though Jesus was guiltless, he bore the punishment that Barabbas' crimes deserved. We didn't read it uh, earlier in Isaiah 53 verse 9, but the contrast between Jesus' innocence and Barabbas' guilt should also bring to our minds Isaiah 53 verse 9. There we read, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Jesus had done no violence. But Barabbas had. Jesus had done nothing wrong. But Barabbas did. Jesus was innocent. He was the guiltless one who died in the place of the guilty one. Barabbas was guilty of misleading the people. He, he genuinely was a subversive agent to Roman rule. He started an insurrection. He was a rebel and a murderer. But Jesus took his place. He died in his place. And it strikes me that Barabbas' sins are no different than our own. And like Barabbas, we need Jesus to die in our place. This is how the Bible answers the problem of sin. A Savior who substitutes His sinless life for our sin-filled lives. Friends, God made the world and everything that is in it. He made you and He made me and He gave us life and breath. And we have used the gift of life that God has given to us to rebel against Him and to subvert God's rule. We have been insurrectionists against God. We've not only decided that we're going to live how we want to, but we've even decided to encourage others in their sin and rebellion against God. And to make matters worse, we're murderers like Barabbas. And perhaps you're shocked by that suggestion. The truth is, is that Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, that if we're angry with another person, then we've committed murder in our hearts. We're murderers. When we read about Barabbas in verses 19 and 25, we're reading about the story of our own lives. Rebels. Angry murderers. When we're reading about Jesus taking Barabbas' place, we're reading about our only hope and comfort today. Though Jesus is perfectly righteous and guiltless, he gave his life for the guilty. Friend, Jesus not only died in the place of Barabbas, but he also died in the place of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him. Jesus was the perfect substitute and sacrifice for sin. He made full atonement. He paid the full cost of all of the sins of his people, all of those who would ever turn away from their sins and place their faith in him. And we know that God the Father gladly received Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of sinners like you and me because three days after his death, God raised him from the dead. And now Jesus, he invites everyone everywhere to turn from their sins and place their faith in him. And friend, I urge you to repent, to turn away from your sins and to believe in Jesus. This is how you might escape God's judgment. This is how the guilty go free through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what it means to be saved by Jesus and set free from condemnation, please come and find me at the door after the service. Or talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. This is the good news of Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. The guiltless took the place of the guilty so that the guilty might gain glory. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. We, we began by reflecting on how Sidney Carton saved Charles Darnay from death by standing at his side. But as A Tale of Two Cities comes to a close, spoiler alert, Sidney Carton would save Charles Darnay from death once again. This time, by standing in his place. Charles Darnay had been put in a French prison and he would soon face the guillotine. Sidney Carton broke into the prison in order to break Darnay out, he traded clothes and places with him. Charles Darnay left the prison and France a free man, while Sidney Carton walked to the guillotine in Darnay's place. Before his death, a young woman realized that Sidney Carton had 
traded places with Charles Darnay. And she asked him this very interesting question. Are you dying for him? And Sidney Carton and this young man, as they walked to the guillotine, he answered yes. And as they were walking, she said to him, I think you were sent to me by heaven. Do you know why she said that? Do you know why she said, I think you were sent to me by heaven? She said that because as she admitted, Sidney Carton's actions of trading places with Charles Darnay reminded her of, quote, him who was put to death that we might have hope and comfort here today. Sidney Carton's trading places with Charles Darnay reminded her of Jesus and his trading places with sinners like you and me. If you are to have hope and comfort here today, if you are to have hope and comfort as you stand before the throne of the eternal God on the last day and face his judgment, then you must know and believe that Jesus took your place. This is what heaven has done. God has sent his sinless son to take the place of the guilty ones so that we might be daughters and sons. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that even in this horrifying scene, he was tried and found innocent, found guiltless, found sinless. And we give you thanks that he was traded so that we might have hope and know that what he said he came to do to stand in the place of sinners, he was true to his word. Father, we confess our guilt. We rejoice in Jesus' guiltlessness. And we give you thanks for your grace and mercy upon sinners like us. We pray and ask that you would bring us home to glory through Jesus, we pray. Amen.